Hello, everybody, and welcome back to This is the History of Religions and Their Gods. And today is February 28th. It is 2021, and um, this is episode 15. Man, we're making our way on through and getting into that um, really close to transitioning into a year one of the, you know, of the common era. So the title of this particular episode is Antiochus the Antichrist. And we're really going to be picking up from where we left off on episode 14. Because as I said in episode 14, that was just kind of like a high-level view of this character and this guy's impact on the Jews and Judea at the time. And especially the heavy influence of Hellenization onto that second temple. Um, so it's going to be a great episode and definitely not one to miss. Um, this is going to be the one that, again, it's going to follow up. I referred to episode 14 as the tee-up because it's really going to take us into what we need to understand when we start talking about Christianity and, and, and the importance of Christianity as we start talking about this guy and what happens in this next 200 years of, of, of this religion. So, and a couple of the things I want to talk about is... Um, the distribution of this particular podcast, just a quick little shout out. So I'm excited that the United States is only 69% of the listener base right now and big European base. And I see that we also just picked up Canada. We lost Saudi Arabia, but we picked up Canada. So, um, hey, a shout out to my brothers up there in um, North America and uh, hope you guys are surviving and doing well. Um, I'm planning a vacation up there in September for a couple of weeks, so uh, make sure you clear out the COVID and get rid of all the lockdowns and um, I'm looking forward to coming up there. I'm gonna be doing some boating and fishing and all that kind of good crazy stuff. So anyway, without further ado, thank you for listening. Thanks for coming back and giving uh, the show another shot, as it is the most ultimately amazing show. <laughs> and um, man, let's get this thing started. All right, let's go. From 175 to 164, before the Common Era, Antiochus Epiphanes, literally called the Mad or the Mad One behind closed doors, but again, where we picked up from episode 14, he was the Seleucid king of the Hellenistic Empire of Syria, and he is considered the Antichrist in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, if you would. Now, I don't want to stray away too far on this, but remember in the Hebrew Bible, any references to Satan initially was um, Shatan, you know, or just it was the, the Jewish challenge, a challenge of Jewish faith. It wasn't an individual yet at this point. That didn't come around until sometime around the 2nd and 1st century of BCE. But the, but the Satan character was about testing the faith of the Jews. And this particular character, Antiochus, he absolutely does that. So he's referred to as the Little Horn in Daniel 8, 9, which brings the Danielist editors working obviously well into the 160s before the Common Era, or perhaps even the 150s. If you ask me, that's where I put my money post-Maccabean revolt. But the name Epiphanes actually literally means, you know, if you remember his father, you know, Antiochus III, it meant, you know, God's manifest. And to um, Antiochus IV preferred illustrious one. So you're already getting a little flavor of this guy, right? But again, you know, his contemporaries and his generals would, you know, refer to him behind his back as madman. I'm pretty sure that he, pro they, he probably didn't, you know, say this to his face. <laughs> but maybe they did. 
but he differs in many respects with the little horn of Daniel in chapter 7, seeing that the little horn of chapter 7, 8 appears in the context in the fourth kingdom, which is Rome. It's clearly Rome when he's referring to it as the fourth kingdom, and we'll talk about that. While the little horn of um, 8, 9 appears in the context of the third kingdom, which scholars believe is Greece. So um, we're going to break this down, down a little bit more as we get into it. But the prophecies of Daniel um, will tell us about this Antiochus Epiphanes. And if you want to just make note or if you want to go ahead and pull up lifetime in your Bible, it's Daniel and it's 8, 9 to 14, 23 through 25, and then 11, 21 through 35. It's, that one's a pretty big chapter. But these prophecies have both a historical as well as a future fulfillment, as you say, the way that this um, particular author likes to write. But because these prophecies point to both Antiochus as, you know, as well as the future Antichrist in the New Testament, we have to understand that, um, you know, I, I, I think he's really starting to see what's going to be happening in the change of the Second Temple Judaism. He already sees this. He, it, 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 it's already happened. And, and, it, and it's on its way to its own destruction. We've talked about already the extreme. So you have to imagine, if this Danielist is writing, if I'm right, if he's writing in the 150s, perhaps 140 BCE, the temple is already on its way to destruction. Remember, that's all about the banking system. It's administration. It is the capital of wealthy Jews who has accepted the Hellenistic culture into its organization, if you would. It's not a Yahwistic temple, like some of you might want to believe or understand that, you know, what you've been led to believe. So this writer already is seeing the direction that this temple is going. But however, you know, liberal commentators such as uh, D.S. Russell, he sees the verses only as a historical fulfillment due to the late dating of the book of Daniel. So, and he calls it 165 BCE. Although, you know, just from what we talked about before, you know, he's referring he's referring back to, you know, the initial Hellenization, you know, some 150 years, 180 years before the fact with um with with, with the, the Alexandrian period and the heavy Hellenistic and accepted by the Jews, the Hellenism, the Hellenistic culture, and the wealth and the art and the gods that would take place in this temple. So I would put my money on Daniel being written by the same author between 100 and 150 BCE from start to finish. But Antiochus, he was openly contemptuous of Judaism, and I think he seriously wanted to modernize this Jewish religion as well as the culture. He wanted to modernize it, bring it up to his way. Matter of fact, he went as far as he installed high priests into the temple who were very supportive of his policies, and he placed them in charge. They were in charge of the temple. So now you have to understand. I mean, we're starting off with the Alexandrian period, some 200 years before, the Yahwistic cult barely ever, never had possession or control of the second temple. A very small window that they may have had an opportunity to, but they failed to hold on to it. It was always Hellenized from the 300s, from, from the mid-300s on until its destruction into the first century. And they never had their own priests in there. I mean, I mean there's a 100-year there's a period that, that we'll talk about where they did. 
but that's a blink of an eye of the life of the temple. But when a rebellion against Hellenization broke out in 168, Antiochus ordered his army to attack Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, it's recorded in uh, Maccabees 2. It says that the number of Jews that were slain in the battle were as many as 40,000, with another 40,000 that were taken captive and enslaved. So Antiochus actually goes as far as having his general and his troops go in, and they empty the temple of all of its treasury. We talked about it. The temple was, it was known, it was for wealthy Jews, those who were controlling the temple of wealth, right? It wasn't the urban outsetters. It was the wealth. The wealth, you know, the treasury is in there. That's gold and the money is kept in there. This is where the administration was. This was a bank for all intents and purposes. But so what he does is he goes in there and he empties the treasury takes it back to Syria. He violates the Holy of Holies and he intensified his policy of Hellenization. He ordered the observances of the Hebrew of the Hebrew Bible and the traditions, the Mishnah law, to be replaced by Hellenistic worship instead. He even banned circumcision. It belonged to the Egyptians first anyway, and actually circumcision was more of a Syrian thing. So I don't know why he does that, but they had picked up the tradition and ran with it and it had became, become something that was part of the Jewish tradition. So he gets rid of it. We get it. And he also bans sacrifice. Now, I, I, know, I know you guys don't like to hear that, but again, we know that the Jews were sacrificing small animals and in even some cases, children. And he instituted a monthly observance of his birthday, the son of a bitch. But he goes further. He goes even further. He places a statue of Zeus on the Temple Mount. Do you remember we talked about the Temple Mount a few episodes ago? Oh, now we've got Zeus. But don't worry, because the wealthy Jewish class that was managing the temple loved it. They loved Zeus. Now, there are some other accounts that say that um, Antiochus was actually humiliated and ultimately forced to leave Egypt. And then Antiochus quickly turned his vengeance upon Jerusalem and the Jews, the Jewish inhabitants there. And then you can see that um, this, the writers of the Maccabees go on to, you know, describe all the events that took place. And here's a few. He killed over 80,000 men, women and children, and sold another 40,000 into slavery. That's in 2 Maccabees um, verses 5 to 14. And he goes on, the holy place was robbed of its treasures and the temple was dedicated to Jupiter Olympus. And then it goes on, the temple was defiled by offering a sow, you know, a pig, upon its altar and scattered its blood all over the sanctuary as well as its vessels. And then he decides to, he substituted the Jewish feast. You know how important that is, you know, an important tradition in, um, to the Jews. He replaced it with the drunken revelry of Bacchanalia, forcing the Jews to worship the, the god Bacchus, of course, who is the god of pleasure and wine, I might ask. But also the, the, the licentious festival of Saturnalia, which is the worship of Satan, was Satan, <laughs> Saturn, was also forced upon the inhabitants there. So, you know, this is not the Jerusalem you're probably reading about in the Gospels, right? He forbade the reading of the Holy Scripture and the tradition of circumcision. 
which was actually a Syrian and an Egyptian tradition anyway before the uh, Jews actually picked it up. It wasn't a covenant with God. The Egyptians actually taught the Jews how to do it. But the, this this writer also goes to, you know, and, and I, I've, I've heard this a lot before, um, that he was known for throwing Jewish infants off the highest walls in Jerusalem and that he kills two mothers who had circumcised her children in defiance of that law. He also cuts out the tongues of a mother's seven sons after they had after he had roasted them alive on a flat iron. You can read that one on 2 Maccabees, V-I-I, 3 through 5. Then, of course, the mother was killed herself. But if you want to take a look at this, you know, the thousands of Jews that are recorded that were, um, you know, murdered by Antiochus, uh, you can actually find it in 1 Maccabees, 1, um, 20 through 28, and 2 Maccabees, 5, 11 through 17, if you want to uh, do your own little research in there and see what um, they had reported of, you know, that particular battle. But in 167 BCE, the Maccabees, who was a family of religiously zealous Jews, they led a revolution against Antiochus and his imposition of Hellenistic customs and religions upon them. And they sought to restore the power of the religion that they had believed in was mandated by God himself. In his holy land, mind you, Jerusalem, that is. And the Maccabees compelled the inhabitants of the city that they you know, conquered to convert to Judaism again. And, you know, get rid of all the Saturnalia and the Bachism and the Zeus and, you know, all the Greek culture that's in there. So you got to understand, it was a split. I, I, I don't know if I can say, you know, and you have to look and see what other historians say, but, you know, was it a 50-50 split? Because we're talking about, you know, half of the Jewish population is really pulling for, you know, the wealth. You know, everybody, it's natural. You want to work hard. And everybody's typically has accepted the gods of the region that you're in. And at this particular time, it is Zeus. Or, you know, it's Bacchus. Or it's, it, it's, it's, it's whatever. It is Hellenistic. It's, the temple is just absolutely Hellenized. And everybody's happy, right? They're making money. They're living. Their life is good. Not to mention when you have these, these Greek festivals that are now becoming part of the culture. It's fun. And then you have this other half. It may have been 20, 30%. Maybe it's more on the higher side. That wanted to remain back to the old Jewish traditions. Bringing back the Torah observance and underneath the one supreme Jewish God, Yahweh. Now, again, we don't know how big this population is. You know, we, 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 only can, we only can guess. But the Maccabees go as far as trying to, you know, it's just like today. It's just like today in terms of a politician going out and trying to get people to change their ways. They want people to go Trump, not Biden. Obviously, I'm talking because, you know, we're in current time. But that is the... That is the idea that's going on, right? It's no different. But males were either, you know, permitted themselves to be circumcised or they would or they would be slain. We understand that that was something that was being told. But after a 20-year struggle, the Maccabees eventually did prevail against the Seleucids. And to quote one Maccabees, the yoke of the Gentiles was removed from Israel. 
And that's uh, 1341. Now, although the Maccabees did go on and they ruled Israel and the temple for more than 100 years, I think it was like 103 years, remember we talked about in episode 14, their kingdom, it was never secure. It's like we talked about that before. You know, they, they, they maybe were able to, you know, go to the Temple Mount and remove the huge-ass statue of Zeus and put it into a dumpster or something like that. Or maybe they took it to, uh, remember, Gehana, um, which was basically the trash dump in Jerusalem that um, later Christians will refer to as hell. <laughs> but maybe they put it in there. Maybe they put it into a dumpster fire. I, 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 don't, I don't know. But... Anyway, but the Seleucid threat to the region was, you know, replaced by an even greater one. The Empire of Rome, right? So it was, it was, it was a natural thing to happen. Roman expansionism and Hellenistic culture constantly threatened to engulf the religious state that the Maccabees had tried so hard to establish and taken back that temple. And in 65 BCE... Well, you can guess another civil war broke out between the two Maccabean rivals for the for that throne. And it was at this time that the uh, Antipater, uh, the the Edomite, who is the wily father of Herod, we talked about Herod before, um, he started to appear on the scene now. Now uh, Antipater uh, helped bring about Roman intervention into the, into civil war, and when Pompey sent his um, legate, uh, what's his name, Scarus into Judea with the Roman army, it marked the beginning of the end of the Maccabean religious state. For the next 30 years, from 65 to 37 BCE, Judea suffered through one war after another. And finally, by 40 BCE, the last Maccabean ruler, uh, Matthias, um, we talked about him before, he seized control of the country. And by this time, however, the Herodian family was firmly established as Rome's surrogate in the region and with Roman support, defeated Matthias's army and gained control of Judea. So there you kind of have it, you know. <laughs> I mean, you went from having this this Syrian Hellenistic, you know, ruler. Well, I mean, I mean, even just starting off with Alexander the Great in three thirty three BCE, going all the way into you know Antiochus three and then Antiochus four in here, and then now. And then now we've got the Roman emperor, and we've got Herod in there, who is a Roman sympathizer. There's just no turning back. So I think I think we're painting the picture pretty clear here, right? So shortly after the destruction of the Maccabean state, the Sicarii, now if you want to spell it, it's S-I-C-A-R-I-I. -I. And this is basically, we're going to talk a lot about them later on, but this is a new movement against Rome and the Herodian control. And they began to emerge. And this is basically a group of lower class Jews you know, we had talked about before that were originally, you know, Jewish zealots, um, Jewish rebels um, that were fighting to, you know, take regain control of the temple and, you know, uh, kind of like destroy the upper class and, you know, the, the traditions that this wealthy Jewish upper class brought in into the system and accepting these Hellenistic you know, values and, you know, replacing many of the Jewish traditions. But they would basically continue with the Maccabees started, you know, with the religious struggle against the control of Judea for, by outsiders. And they sought to restore Israel. So how do we conclude with this? As we learned from the Canaanite narrative, the Jewish writers had made, had, they had mad creative skills and they 
tended to embellish quite a bit as a literary political device. We know that. So unfortunately, there is no real extra biblical evidence that these atrocities actually happened. But there is um, a scroll of Antiochus that can be looked at that recounts the story of the victory of the Maccabees and the Seleucid Empire. So maybe some of the truth is distorted, but for the most part, I think we can probably get the idea that a lot of this stuff is probably pretty true. And it is distinct to the book of the Maccabees that describes the same events. However, there are several theories as the authorship, you know, that they could be different, um, or perhaps even edited and changed over time, which we can, you know, absolutely attest to. This happens, you know, throughout history, especially throughout antiquity and, you know, hundreds of years after the fact. But um, some even go back as dating it as late as the second, or perhaps even the fifth century of edits of the Common Era. And the consensus is of the earlier dating, however. But, you know, there's always going to be those guys saying, ah, it was written hundreds of years later. I'd be one of those guys. But we could definitely know that there was, you know, much persecution of the Jews, as well as all the other things that we had talked about. We just can't attest to the, uh, to the atrocities of 80,000 murdered and babies being thrown over the wall. That, I'm guessing, you know, when mother's tongues caught out. But what we do know is absolutely what happened is what we, you know, discussed previously. But for these reasons, the books were eventually removed from the Old Testament around 1684, and the Vatican moved to 12 additional books on top of them as well, if you can believe that. But um, why they pulled them? I don't know. But just because of the authorship is like what I believe is what they felt was the purpose. So I, I think we have a real good idea as we painted this picture of Second Temple Judaism and its Hellenized or Hellenistic features. Um, and then the control and, and just, you know, the, the fight to take control of the temple. They never got it. The wealthy Jewish class, they held on to it for the most part. There was a small little window where they didn't. But even that, you know, winning faction was driven by wealth as well. <laughs> so I think it's important just to understand, you know, as we start talking about this, you know, Second Temple Judaism as it rolls into the first century of the Common Era that there were many different sects of Judaism. They were all severely entrenched in pagan culture. We know that pagans traveled, lived, and even conducted business with the Jews throughout the Holy Land. Even Philo of Alexandria, who was a Hellenistic Jewish philosopher who lived in Alexandria in the Roman province of Egypt, he was heavily Hellenized. And he clearly engaged with the Jews at the end of the first century of before the Common Era as well as into the first century of the common era. Many Jews still held on to those earlier pre-Yahwistic beliefs. Then there are others that believed in two gods, Jews believing in 20 gods, Jews believing in 365 gods, Jews celebrating the mighty feast, the festival, Jews celebrating Saturnella, the drunken festival. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's true. Not everyone joined the new monotheistic cult, and it never really did have control of the temple over Jerusalem. So I, I think that kind of ties it up into a ribbon and hopefully gives you a little bit of, um, I don't know, curiosity to want to go and start looking yourself. And Because um, I'm giving you a very high view, but I think in pretty good detail we get an idea of what this temple looked like. 
And when we start going in to talk about the first century, especially into Christianity, this stuff is so important. It's really important to understand. So when we start talking about um, especially the, um, the, 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 the four Gospels, the canonized Gospels and Acts that were written, actually placed inside the New Testament, part of the 26 books, we'll get a real good idea when we have some back knowledge here of what was going on in the temple. I now want to um, kind of roll into just maybe the next 15 minutes and talk about the writing on the wall. We've all kind of heard that phrase before at one point in our life, right? So where did it come from? So we're going to talk a little bit about Belshazzar. Now, Belshazzar was um, the eldest son of Nabonidus, who we talked about previously a couple of episodes ago. And his name literally means Bel, protect the king. Um, you know, we can go into and think a lot about Bel as also he is a derivative from the god Baal, um, you know, from the from the Canaanite religion. But he was basically the last king of the Babylonian Empire and he was and he served as the regent for his father during his um prologue downsides from the city. And if we talk about Nabonidus, <laughs> he wasn't the kind of king that um you would imagine as being the ruler of the throne. He had some other ideas. Um and he's an interesting guy. He's an interesting king to look at. I'm talking about Nabonidus right now. It's his, his father. But he wasn't the kind of king that wanted to hang out in the castle. He didn't want to hang out on, in the throne room. He didn't want to sit on the throne. He went out on a lot of adventures. Um, he, he was constantly away. <laughs> um, you know, he's into a, he was into a lot of things. He was into, like, I believe, like archaeology and, you know, and, 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 and digging and investigating and all, all this other kind of crazy stuff. But he's kind of a cool dude in his own right. So while, while, while he's out, so his, his, his son, Belshazzar, is actually kind of taken on the role. Then ultimately he does become, become king. Um, and when he does die in 539, um, it was more than likely, at least, you know, in the folklore, he probably died underneath, um, you know, Cyrus, the, you know, when, when, he, when, he, when he conquered Babylon. Or he may have just simply died of old age. Nobody actually really knows. But in history, what we do know is the most important sources for the time of Belshazzar are actually found in the Nabonidus Chronicle. And the Cyrus Cylinder and the verse accounts of Nabonidus, which, you know, despite its name, it was commissioned by the Persian conqueror Cyrus the Great. So Belshazzar was the son of Nabonidus, and, you know, we talked about, you know, he was the last son of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. But the Nabonidus Chronicles described him as the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. But I'm guessing, and most scholars believe, that this is probably just a little piece of more political propaganda justify the reign of his father, who was not of the royal line. See how they play with that a little bit? But he played a pivotal role in the coup d'etat that overthrew the king, the King Marduk, Labashi Marduk. And he brought Nabonidus to power in 556 BCE. Although unlike his co-conspirators, he was not a member of the old Babylonian aristocracy. Nabonidus spent the years of 553 to 533 BCE in the, oasis, in, in the oasis of Tiamat. 
in the northern areas of the Arabian Peninsula, leaving Belshazzar to govern all of Babylon in the army. But during his father's prolonged absence, you know, we talked about the stuff that he was doing. Belshazzar ruled as a regent or a co-regent, but he was never really called king and never took part in the Babylonian New Year festival, at which the king's presence was usually quite essential. His duties as crown prince, the title that you know appears at least in all the documents, included overseeing the temple estates and leasing out temple land. And he worked at restoring, you know, the Babylonian god Marduk, demoted by Nabonidus in favor of the moon god Sin. But our world traveler king Nabonidus, he does return back to Babylon sometime around 543 BCE. And the status of Belshazzar, therefore, is it's a little unclear. You know, I mean, what we just say is about a 10-year period that he's kind of, kind of ruling, but he's kind of not. He's not necessarily participating in the festivals. Who knows what the hell he's doing, but it's not really clear. But the king's return, Nabonidus, that is, it may have been, you know, connected with the increasing threat posed by the Persian conqueror Cyrus the Great, who ruled a huge empire to the north and the east of Babylon. It, you know, open hostilities, you know, commenced in, you know, in, in 539 BC, it's right around October 12th, and Aburu, governor of the district of Gutium, and the army of Cyrus entered Babylon without a battle. It's even noted in the Babylonian Chronicle. This is presumably the same individual as Gobrias, a Babylonian um, provincial governor who switched to the Persian side later on, mentioned by the Greek historian Xenophon. But, ne but Nabonidus was captured and his life apparently was spared. But Belshazzar may have died during the fall of the city, most scholars believe. So anyway, that's just a little bit of background knowledge on our, on our boy Nabonidus um, and Belshazzar. So let's get into the book of Daniel that we're talking about. I just wanted to kind of give you a little overview. But in the book of Daniel in the, in the Hebrew Bible, Belshazzar plays a significant role in the tale of Belshazzar's feast. <laughs> which uh, it's a variation on the story of Nebuchadnezzar's madness, showing what happened when a Gentile king does not repent to God of the Jews, right? You, you can already see that we're um, creating our own history here. And um, just like the Deuteronomist did. So this writer for Daniel, he's no different. But during this feast, the Babylonians eat and they drink from the holy vessels that were taken from the first temple. Yeah, I remember that. King Nebuchadnezzar is the one that captured the temple. But now, so now we're referring to Belshazzar at taking that role. And King Belshazzar sees the words as he's sitting in, you have, you have to imagine. So he's sitting in his room and he's got a lamp on, or, you know, an oil lamp, I'm guessing. He probably didn't have electricity yet. But he sees a hand come across as a big shadow going across the wall. And he sees the words right across the wall. He actually sees the hand of God, as it's as this Daniel is saying, writing on the wall. Mini, mini, tekel. M-E-N-E, M-E-N-E-T-E-K-E-L. And then the last word is eupharsin. So, many, many, tekel, upharsin. It, it's mysteriously being written on the wall by the light of this lamp. You can imagine this, right? 
And Daniel interprets, interprets this writing as the judgment from Yahweh, the God of Israel, for telling the fall of Babylon. Now Daniel tells Belshazzar that because he has not given honor to God yet, his kingdom will be given to the Medes and the Persians. Belshazzar is killed later that night, and Darius the Mede takes hold of the kingdom. Now, obviously, this writer for Daniel was, he wasn't foretelling the future of the fall of the Babylonian, you know, city and the, the following captivity to the Persian king Cyrus. But the book of Daniel was compiled shortly after 164, we know this, following the Maccabean revolt. But the story about, of Belshazzar's feast, it's known as historical fiction, it's, we all know this, but several details are not consistent with historical facts at all. But it's okay. We, we, our job here isn't to try to figure all that out. That's just interesting to me. But what is the story that this Danielist is trying to tell us? So we know that, that Daniel is trying to portray this Belshazzar as the king of Babylon and the son of Nebuchadnezzar, though he was actually the son of Nabonidus, which we know for sure one of Nebuchadnezzar's successors. And he never became the king in his own right, which is another thing to remember. So, you know, it, nor did he ever, you know, lead the religious festival as the king was required to do. We know that as well. So in this invented story, the conqueror who inherits Babylon is Darius the Mede. But no such individual is known in history anywhere else. And the invaders were actually the Persians, not the Medes. But this is typical you know, tale of court contest, if you would, in which historical accuracy is not an essential element. So in the book of Daniel, in the Jewish tradition, Belshazzar is not malevolent. He actually re rewards Daniel and raises him to the high office. So for sure, we know that this never happened, right? Uh, clearly. But the later authors of the Talmud and the Midrash emphasized the tyrannous oppression of his Jewish subjects, with several passages in the prophets interpreted as referring to him as his predecessors. For example, in the passage, um, in, in quotation, As if a man did flee from a lion and a bear met him, in quotation, which is in Amos 5.19, the lion is said to represent Nebuchadnezzar. And the bear, equally ferocious, is not equally courageous, would be Belshazzar. So the Babylonian kings are often mentioned together as forming a succession of impious and tyrannical monarchs who oppressed Israel, and were therefore, you know, foredoomed the, to disgrace and the, and the destruction, as seen in Isaiah 14, 22, and, and quoted, and I will rise up against them, saith the Lord of hosts, and cut off from Babylon name and remnant and sons of grandchild, saith the Lord. End quotation. This is applied to the trio of the three names, which to Nebuchadnezzar, remnant to Amel Marduk, son to Belshazzar, and grandchild to Vashti. Um... So, so the command given to Abraham to cut in pieces the three heifers in Genesis 15, 9, as part of the covenant to establish between him and his God, was thus elucidated as symbolizing Babylonia, which gave the rise to three kings, Nebuchadnezzar, Amel Marduk, and Belshazzar, whose doom is prefigured by this act of cutting to pieces. So seen as in the Midrash, 
Genesis Rabbah, and it is um, XLIV. So there are other accounts about how Belshazzar potentially died. And we can see in the Midrash literature um, that, you know, in this tradition, it was Cyrus the Great and Darius III who were actually employed as the doorkeepers of the royal palace. And so Belshazzar, when he's sitting at his desk and he's got the oil lamp and he sees God's hand writing on the wall, those four words, and he's greatly alarmed at the mysterious handwriting. And he, you know, worried that someone in disguise might actually enter into the palace with murderous intent coming in to kill him. So what does he do? He goes and orders Cyrus and Darius to, you know, the doorkeepers to behead anyone who attempted to enter the palace that night, that night. So, even if that person claimed to be the king himself, cut his head off. Whack! So, Belshazzar starts to feel a little queasy, you know. He's a little gassy. Maybe he's feeling a little sick. So, he leaves the palace unobserved that night. And he goes through this rear exit. Nobody sees him. He's got the private door, the Belshazzar door. But on his way back, he comes up and he approaches you know, the two doorkeepers, Cyrus and Darius. And they refuse to let him in. And he, and he says, hey, I, 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 I'm Belshazzar, I'm the king, let me in. And they respond back to him and says, has not the king ordered us to put to death anyone who attempts to enter the palace through, even though if he claims to be the king himself? So ultimately, Cyrus and Darius grabbed their swords and piece of this heavy ornament, and they smashed him over the freaking head. Whack! <laughs> over their king. So these stories, you know, they start to give us a better idea of the dating and, you know, and yeah, in their creative power. And, you know, I think a lot of this stuff is, you know, I mean, obviously this whole thing was a farce. The whole thing's just a complete fallacy. But you get an idea of these stories that are being told, swapping out characters, putting other characters into place. And, um, I don't know, I think it's just extremely cool to try to look at this stuff underneath a different light. So the writing on the wall is actually a, a pretty pretty cool little story talking about the feast of Belshazzar. Anyway, I hope that you ex enjoyed this episode and um, thought it was fun enough to listen to its entirety. And um, thank you again, uh, my new Canadian listener. And I'm sorry to my pal in Saudi Arabia that we're getting along so well. I was looking forward to uh, having some dialogue with you, but you, you evidently fell off. Um, I wasn't keeping you, um, you know, excited enough. But anyway, hey guys, I appreciate it. Hope you're having a wonderful weekend. Um, hope you're getting through the snow if you got snow. Hope you're getting through the COVID if you guys got COVID in your area and starting to see some of these lockdowns lightened up. And um, again, hey, I uh, just want to thank you to all my heathen listeners. You know, I appreciate you guys. Um, love what you do. Hope that you're um, enjoying the message that we're trying to spread here and um, the positive uh, culture of understanding history, separation of church and state, and um, but loving our brothers as well. You know, so I, I am trying to leave this as a, a message at the end of each one of these episodes. But even to my believer pals, you know, you know that I love you guys. And I look forward to having conversations with you guys about this stuff too, if you like. Um, and you know I'd do anything for you, including giving you the shirt off my back. So in conclusion of this particular episode, again, you know, we talk about, 
I hope that you're listening to this in your car or perhaps you're on a jog, you're running, doing a trail run, which I love to do immensely. And you're listening to this podcast, you're listening to these stories and you're getting this, you know, wealth of knowledge. But please don't look at it that way. Please picture us. Actually, you know, I just I just put in some great patio furniture. If you follow me on Instagram, you see it. I've got this beautiful courtyard in the middle of my house. And I just got this great new furniture. I got these nice new um, lighting features, and it's beautiful out there. I've got my I've got my uh, Alexa out there, so she's playing some cool tunes. And I'm sitting out there, man, and I've been enjoying my bourbon. And man, I'd love nothing else than just imagine you and me. You are sitting in your car, but you're not in your car. You're sitting across from me in my new patio furniture. I'm drip. I'm sipping on my bourbon, and you're sipping on a bourbon too, or a glass of wine, or a beer, whatever it is that you want to do. I don't even care if it's your 420, whatever it is. We're having this conversation, just you and me, me and you. There's no COVID. Nothing's closed. We're having a great time, just shooting the shit, having positive and having fruitful conversations with one another. Again, thank you for joining aboard, you know, coming on board with me and listening to me jibber-jabber about this stuff. Um, We're getting closer to some real cool stuff, and I hope that you're there for it. Have a wonderful week, everybody. Love, peace, I'm out.